This evening I'd like to reflect upon what it means to trust in being. This afternoon, at the end of the uh, sitting, I commented on the interesting experience that many of us can notice when the bell rings after a period of sitting meditation, the sense of, ah, it's like somehow things feel a lot better once the bell has rung. Although they're really not actually any different, in fact, if we consider them. That sense of release or relief of our sense of often feeling engaged in a, in a busyness, in a drivenness, in a pressured condition that we could describe as or we could describe as doing, and we could understand as somewhat standing in not necessarily opposition, but certainly in contrast to being and what it means to be. Catherine uh, spoke last night and uh, shared the rather lovely story of Frog's Garden. And you uh, remember as it finished the uh, observation about how much work it is. It's very much pointing that story to the unnecessary element of effort that we bring into our activity. And I'd like to explore how it is that that comes to happen, because it's probably reasonably clear to us that it's not that useful. It's certainly exhausting and it's not much fun when we're putting pressure on ourselves or our experience in that way. But how does it happen that we come to be so compellingly engaged in this way? What does it mean for us to learn to trust in being, in not doing? This is one of the great spiritual arts. And it's not easy, surprisingly. It would seem like not doing should be something quite easy. It sounds like, in fact, it should be a holiday. But in fact, it isn't. Because most of us, and certainly I, and I'm sure yourselves will recognize this, we can experience the sense of a, of a pull, of a compulsion, of a need to be engaged in some kind of activity that seems productive, that seems effective, that seems to have meaning or value or generating some kind of result. And the thing about it is it's always involved with something that's measurable. When we get involved with doing, with performing, with producing, it's always to do with something that we can measure because the only basis that doing makes sense is in terms of comparisons, the possibility of improving. So we need to know how it is now and what it's going to look like when it's better, what it's going to be like. There's a measurement involved there. Or we have some image of success and of course equally an image of failure and we need to somehow measure or evaluate some criteria which often are not ones we've really given a great degree of reflection to to determine that success or failure and yet we see that we somehow get caught in the sense of improvement and the fear of course of regression the hope for success and the fear of failure and it's something that very much concerns us, and it seems understandable, it seems natural. 
the sense of self-worth that we have or our sense of validity or value is often and very easily tied to, at least in our minds, not necessarily in reality, but in our minds and the way we think and relate, the way we conceive. It's often associated or dependent upon this capacity to produce results, some sense of acceptability or validity for our existence that we can offer to ourselves or that we imagine others will extend to us, a sense of appreciation, of acknowledgement, of acceptance, of love. It's not enough just to be here. We've got to do something to earn it, it seems. And someone was observing this in the group, one of the groups today. It's like we've got to, we can't just be okay by doing nothing, can we? It seems a little bit radical. Wouldn't the world fall apart if we did that? And so the sense of success, the sense of that the doing is always involved with, a sense of trying to produce a result is always involved with a sense of succeeding. And it, what we're really looking to succeed in, in some ways, is to find a reflection for ourselves that we feel comfortable in, that feels flattering, that feels supportive, that feels encouraging or validating to us. And it's like our sense of trusting in the intrinsic, the natural, the inherent value of our existence is something that hasn't necessarily been supported for us. It's always been conditional. We've been loved if we turn up in a certain way and not if we turn up in a different way. If we produce or succeed, then we're approved. If we are unproductive or if we fail, then we're not approved. This is a message that we can get in so many different ways from the world around us, from those close to us, friends, family, from very early on, and that we quite understandably internalize and often look at ourself and the world through a lens that's framed in terms of this process of activity that's trying to somehow establish our sense of okayness. And so these kind of tendencies and patterns we're, we're invited here to look at, to reflect upon, to see what's going on in this. Because whatever goes on, and I say this regularly, probably said it to some of you here already, um, whatever goes on in our lives goes on in our retreats. And whatever goes on in our retreats goes on in our lives. The patterns we see repeat and replicate, perhaps in different ways or forms. So we might think, actually, no, we're, we're not really into that. We're not, some, we're not here sort of to be materialistic and to grasp and consume and have more experience or somehow fix ourselves. We might conceive in those terms also. And yet, so easily, we notice the tendency and people speak about, you know, having had a good meditation and how quickly that association comes with being a good meditator. Trying to be a good meditator requires to have a good meditation. So how are we going to do that? If we want to succeed at this, if we want to, you know, get a permanent membership to the meditation club, you know, we might feel like we're being tried out here. The teachers are checking out, should we let these people in or not? You know, we're not, honestly. You know, we're, we're not going to grade you at the end. You, you can't fail this. But it, we're so habituated to imagine that's what's going on, that we just do it for ourselves, even if no one else is. 
and we do it to ourselves. Of course, we might be measuring others as well when we look around. Oh, the person's really mindful. I wonder if I can be that. You know. Or that person, you know, out to lunch, clearly. And we see our mind doing it. And then, of course, when we find ourselves being very mindful, oh, well, I'm really doing well here. Yeah, great. I'm doing so well that I almost walked into the door. And <laughs> Oops, I oh, know, lost it. You know, and then suddenly the sense of me flips into blew it. So proud that I was mindful of my step, I didn't notice that the doorway had moved. <laughs> you know, we need to be mindful and have some comprehension together. Sometimes it's more of one, sometimes a bit more of the other. <coughs> but what we tend to do then is we, we kind of set up the situation where we have some image that we're comparing against or measuring against, and we can do it so unconsciously or so sort of it's like so habitual we don't even see it going on that sense of um i got to be a good meditator i somehow have to have no negativity or no reactivity so we turn up maybe you know in an interview speaking with one of you know one of the teachers or just thinking about it ourselves and it's like i'm full of reactivity and as if this and we're almost apologetic sorry you know i know that you know meditators are supposed to be equanimous and peaceful and look really calm and here am i i'm really angry with everybody and that's like okay actually it's okay someone said yesterday you know i expected to get into trouble and i said you know just check it out or maybe it was this morning rather than yesterday anyway i said check it out are you in trouble because it didn't look actually like that person was in trouble to me and i think i was possibly the source of where the trouble was going to come from so it wasn't coming. It was okay. You know, we, we, we find, you know, having had some exposure to Buddhist teaching and doctrine and uh, teaching on the, you know, the emptiness of self, we sort of feel like somehow to be a good Buddhist, I've got to have no self, which is kind of a complicated thing to achieve as it happens, you know. Cause I think, okay, so how do I get rid of that self? And, you know, who is it that's going to get rid of it? And who's going to be left when it's gone? You know, it's a real conundrum. But obviously I'm not supposed to have one because that's what the teachings say, don't they? Now, actually, as Eugene observed, um, I think yesterday, the teachings don't actually say that exactly like that. They say to question the nature of the phenomena that we call self, to explore it, to get to know it. And one of the aspects of it that stands out to us very quickly and clearly here is that sense of the me that's trying to make it happen, to do it. And so, you know, we pick out of the whole range of things that are being talked about. And this, in terms of instructions, in terms of teachings, this is so remarkably consistent, particularly in Western culture. You know, we talk about all sorts of different things we're inviting you to cultivate. But the thing that everybody notices and measures is how concentrated they can get their mind in terms of how long they can stay without the mind wandering off onto something else. And regularly people come and say that is what's the definition of a good meditation is when the mind hasn't wandered at all. You know, if you go and watch a really good movie, mind doesn't wander at all. Hey, great meditation. No. <laughs> but because that ability, and it's of course really important and valuable, that capacity to settle and steady the mind on a chosen topic or object, such as the breath, such as the body, such as taking a step, hearing a sound, because that's something that's quite easy to measure and de define, 
we tend to hook on to it. Also because it's actually quite pleasant when the mind is calm, quiet and steady. So we like it. We start to think that's good meditation. In fact, what that is, is good concentration. And that's great. Yeah, it's wonderful. Nothing wrong with good concentration. But it's not the whole thing. But that's the thing we easily pick out. And, you know, someone said to me today, my meditation is mostly shallow and occasionally did mostly shallow. And they were speaking about being with some really profoundly challenging life experience. And they seemed to be really with it. And I thought, wow, that's depth. That's depth. But it's not so obvious that it's depth because we can't measure the capacity of the heart to open it and hold something that's challenging. It's not so obvious to us as I manage 10 breaths in a row or 20 or 30 or a whole 25 minutes without a single wandering thought. Or for some it's like two minutes, great, I managed two whole minutes. Or two whole breaths actually is quite good sometimes. Now it's always relative to what we're used to. Someone comes in and, oh, you know, my mind wanders after two breaths. The person beside them is thinking, two whole breaths? Two whole breaths? <laughs> it's so relative and yet we get into the sense of good, bad, success, fail so quickly. We're so conditioned in that way. And yet qualities of receptivity, of dedication, of courage, of patience, of open-heartedness, equally what we're speaking about, about are what we're pointing to, are what we're cultivating here. And often, in fact, when the mind is more reactive, when there are more challenging experiences arising in the body, perhaps physical pain or emotional sort of energy, happening in the, in the heart, the mind, then the mind may not feel so still or steady and that's not necessarily what's being strengthened in that moment. Maybe more what's strengthening or deepening or growing is that, is that sense of what we could perhaps say capacity to hold, to receive, to open, to receive and to hold our life and stay present with it as we do that. Stay in touch with it, not withdrawn from it, not separate or apart from it, really there with it. And so being aware of and watching this tendency we have to judge, to judge others, to judge ourselves. You know, there's, there's, there's a sort of scenario that people report again and again. If you're like, oh, you know, I can't do it, it's not working, it doesn't work for me. The experience of doubt is very common on retreat. It's, needs to be named as something that we pretty much all of us experience at times. A sense of, oh, it's not working, and maybe the teachings aren't really very good, or the teachers aren't very good. You know, maybe we need some, you know, something should be different. Or, or maybe sometimes it goes outward, sometimes it's more inwardly. It's often more common. Yeah, maybe it's all right for everybody else, but no, I can't do it. It doesn't work for me. No, not possible. In the sense of sort of like a loss of, of a certain sense of possibility, of vitality, of, of, of the, it's sort of like we puncture the energy of our aspiration <coughs> by that sort of, oh, no, can't do it, oh, to feel a little bit deflated by that. And often we're doing that because we've made some arbitrary decision unconsciously to measure something and say that what determine that I'm succeeding or not. Like even that it feels good. As if feeling good is what determines that I'm succeeding or not. It doesn't, actually. Sorry about that. I think we mentioned that once or twice already, but we'll have to keep saying it because it's true. 
And so this experience that people report in different ways and forms again and again is that they're sitting in meditation and they're trying to do it and it doesn't seem to be coming together, you know. What's this sense of just fuzziness or confusion or distractedness? A sense of, oh, hopeless, can't do it, I give up. Look around. Everybody else is sitting really still, really calm, really upright. sense of, wow, look, everybody else, they can do it. Here we are in this room, it's like 90 Buddhas awakening and one <laughs> overcooked vegetable. <laughs> and sort of, you know, in that moment of, <laughs> might as well give up, why bother? I guess I should stay to the end of the sitting they told me to, so I'll go home after that. But, you know, we sort of collapse and close my eyes because what else to do? And the person next door looks over. That person looks really still. They're really calm. They're not moving. Wow. Probably having some deep experience. You know, we tell these stories about ourselves and each other all the time. And there may not be any real substance to them, except they're pointing to and revealing this measuring, comparing, evaluating habit of mind that drives us so much. So there's a story I often like to tell on retreats about two or three days in. Um, it's uh, one that I heard from someone else. I wasn't there at the time, but it was in uh, a retreat being taught in uh, Yucca Valley, I believe, by uh, a number of teachers, including Jack Cornfield, who's one of the senior teachers of our lineage, and one of the elders of the Insight Meditation world. And uh, very, I've heard various versions of the story, so I'm, I can't guarantee that it's word perfect. But in any event, on this retreat, some time into the retreat, one of the staff asked Jack about their friend who was on the course and said, Jack, how's my friend doing? And Jack's, you know, oh, how are your friend? Yeah, yeah they're doing very well. So, oh, very pleased to hear that, you know, happy for our friend. Uh, the staff, and what about that person that I know? Yeah, they're doing very well also. So someone else pipes up hearing the conversation in the staff dining room. Jack, what about my friend? How are they? Oh, your friend's doing very well also. I start to wonder now. So Jack, they asked, what do you mean by doing very well? Jack smiled and responded. He said, oh, they're still here. <laughs> so if you're wondering how you're doing, there's your answer. Still here. I mean, there's a lot of truth in that, to still be here in the midst of everything we encounter. So perhaps rather than judging ourselves as we so easily do, we might really give ourselves credit, honor actually the nobility and the courage and the patience and the commitment that it asks of us to, to just be here and turn again and again towards our life, just as we're doing. So this process of seeking a positive reflection, seeking to somehow use our experience or what's happening in order to construct a sense of, I feel okay or I, about myself, or I look okay to myself, or I look okay to others. That whole process is something to really pay attention to because 
we get caught in the sense of fear about ending up in a negative position in that and at the same time hope for coming out with a positive result and somehow the hope seems to pull us into it even though at the same time the fear is saying oh this isn't going to go well because it usually doesn't and that's true it often doesn't so we find ourselves in the work period you know really worried that the staff going to be upset with us if we don't do it well, hoping they'll be pleased if we do it well, but knowing that chances are we're not going to because that's the story of our life, you know. And it's like, actually the staff are really kind people, I have to say. They're really friendly. They're very warm for the most part. And I <laughs> but they really know what it's like to be on retreat and doing one's work. And so even when they're saying, and sometimes they need to say, you know, please, we need you to work quite hard here. There's an immense amount of appreciation for the work that gets done. And yet we can be, you know, panicking almost as we do our job sometimes. There's no peace in that. There's no freedom. There's no where we can rest because the pressure, the fear, the, the drivenness of it. And seeing how that tendency gets imported into and applied to our meditation practice is crucial if we really t be able to utilize this as a liberating practice and it is a liberating practice so I was in this context always remember uh, something that happened it was I guess almost 20 years ago now at, at uh, Gaia House the retreat center in England um, near where Catherine and I live and where we both teach quite a lot and have been involved for many, many years now. And uh, on occasion, uh, this occasion I was actually uh, on staff and uh, in the kitchen and during a retreat, one of the teachers, Christina Feldman, who's another one of the senior teachers in this tradition, she came in to the kitchen and it, was also, it wasn't just the kitchen, it was the kitchen, the staff room, the office, it was our whole center of operation. Um, it's a rather small space. She came in really with a big smile on her face, bright eyes, and she said, I've had an insight. I've had an insight. And I, my mind was going, this is Christina. She's been doing this for years. She must have had an insight before. <laughs> you know, but she was clearly excited by what she'd understood or what she'd recognized. And she said, you know, I've just seen really clearly that the only way that the ego can survive meditation is to turn it into an object. And what that means, or what she meant by that, we talked about it, said by the ego turning meditation into something to do, something that it's doing, so that it starts to become, or attempts to become, in charge of it, making it happen, directing it, guiding it, producing it. And therefore, somehow reinforcing itself through the very process that's invited or that's created in order to enable us to see its transparency, its insubstantiality and to free ourselves from its grip. So making meditation something to do. Whenever we start measuring our practice ticking off our achievements, cutting notches in our meditation cushion for the experiences that we've had. Don't do it to the IMS ones. We can start to notice how that happens. Yeah, got it, done it, been there. Wow. 
not that we have to judge that, but notice it, see it. We used to have a poster at Guy House on the wall with the old place uh, before we moved into the larger premises we have now. And it was just like a hand calligraphy list. And it was, you know, like those things you have in offices that, you know, things to do today where you keep all the many things you have to deal with in one place. And I wish I could do that because I have it on 15 different pieces of paper or places in my head. And it's often a bit chaotic for me around that sort of thing. But um, there was this kind of, this, this thing, a list of the things one has to do today. And it says, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in breathe out and you think oh what a list wow okay so like that invitation the things we have to do today pretty much anything else if it doesn't happen it's going to be all right (laughs) but that yeah make sure that happens if that doesn't happen all the rest of it starts to become slightly less important and yet even that do we have to do it have we noticed that it happens that breathing happens, the breath comes in, the breath goes out. I mean, imagine if we were to make our New Year's resolution. You know, what am I going to do in the new year? There's all these good things we could do, I'm sure. But, you know, put it at the top of the list, breathe in, breathe out. Maybe you could fill the whole list with that. And what would that do for us? Should we, should we make a shift in that direction? It can be really attractive. There's something in us, I think, and certainly for myself, I notice that sense of, yeah, I, I, I love the sense of what that invites or suggests or evokes for me. And yet I could really see how sometimes that is not what I choose at some level I start to pile up the things that need to be done and get busy with doing them and worried about doing them well, for sure. So, first of all, we can see in this process there's a sort of a, sometimes a little frustration because we're trying to make things happen, to get it right, to do it well, and it doesn't always work. We can't always do that. Just, you know, we see trying to get our mind to be calm and still, trying to get our body to be comfortable trying to get our posture right. Can't really do it. It can be a bit frustrating or disheartening. And there's a, there's a really powerful and profound teaching that's here. Sometimes I say it's the first insight of insight meditation, that our experience is not in our control. Part of what this form is set up to show us is that truth. So the fact that you can't make it happen the way you think it should and that you're not able to succeed at it according to your model of it is in fact that you're succeeding. Succeeding at revealing the fact that we can't do this in that way. We can't make it happen according to our plan. Not just the meditation, but life, life itself. It's not like that. And yet, Although that understanding can be profoundly liberating for us, freeing and delightful. In fact, often when we encounter it, our experience is quite the opposite of that. Because in fact, when we encounter the vulnerability of that reality, the fact that we can't make it the way we want it, we can't have it the way we think it should be, 
that's scary. That's really scary. This body, this heart, this mind that feels so close to us. So much what we imagine and believe ourselves to be should conform to what I want or expect, shouldn't it? Or at least, wouldn't happiness mean that it did? Isn't that what it's all about? Experience is unpredictable and uncontrollable. We learn that, we notice that. We sort of know that, but we don't always live according to that knowing, that understanding. Because fear gets a hold of our hearts so easily, so quickly sometimes. So much of the doing, the busyness, the activity, the drivenness of life is born of fear. And when we arrive here, we can often notice there's a momentum, a sort of a, a momentum in the mind, a momentum in the body and in the heart, a sort of an ongoingness, a movingness, a spinning, a spiraling, a cycling. And it's a momentum that's often driven by fear and anxiety. And we come here and we feel that. We feel that it's still moving, even if our body is relatively still. We feel it moving within us. The attempt to prevent and to avoid harm, <coughs> discomfort, pain, suffering. Of course, it's totally understanding because we care for ourselves. We don't wish to suffer. We don't wish to experience pain, and understandably. But what happens is that that wish to not experience pain, when we don't understand it, when we don't look at it well, we get pulled into the future by it. Fear always has, when we don't understand it, fear has the effect of pulling us out of where we are into the future. Fear is never about what's happening now. It's always about what might happen or what it will be like if what's happening now keeps happening, continues to happen or happens again. That's what fear is about. It has this way of pulling us out of where we are. And of course, it's kind of hard to argue with it because the truth is the future is unknown and anything could happen, including something really difficult or painful. And sometimes that is what happens. But understanding that the process of being pulled out of where we are and driven into the future in some vain attempt to predict, to analyze, and to control it, actually, A, it doesn't work, because we can't, because it's not there, it hasn't happened yet, and B, the experience of being pulled out in that way and driven in that way is deeply and grievously painful to us. In fact, as uh, very well expressed in uh, the words of Mark Twain, who once observed, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. But it's like the, the worrying about what it's going to be like if it does happen, it becomes the worst experiences. It's much more painful because we can't deal with it, because it's not actually real. When it's here, when something really hard or difficult happens, it can be really hard or difficult, but because it's actually happening, we can begin to engage with it, respond to it. But so easily we don't stay with the actual happening, we go into the what if, and we move away into the future. So with fear, and as a way of cutting through that momentum that drives us, it's so useful to remember, to understand that fear is an experience that's happening now and here, always. It's telling us a story about the future, but it's happening here. 
And the only place we can meet it, the only place we can deal with it, is here. So we turn back towards our experience again, and we get to know what it's like to experience it, to be present with it, to make friends with the experience. Now sometimes, of course, there's a there's an intelligence, there's a wisdom that we could express as caution that's appropriate where there's danger. If we're walking on the road and we hear the sound of a car coming towards us, you know, it's really useful to check out and see, am I in the bit of the road that the car's coming towards? Because I'm just thinking, oh, fear, fear, it's about the future, I'll just note it. <laughs> you know, no, no, no. Intelligence says, check out. Oh, actually the car is on the other lane or it's, I'm on the edge, it's in the middle, I'm fine. So we can take care of ourselves. We can listen. It's like that experience of fear, just like pain in a way. It's saying, pay attention to what's happening here. Pay attention to what's here. And then we can respond appropriately. It doesn't mean we don't respond, but that we do so from having fully acknowledged or taken in what's going on so far as we can. And yet our body responds quite strongly. I was, um, when I was a... It was in my late teens, I was messing about with some friends in a, um, at a friend's farm. We had a couple of motorbikes and a car doing what young lads might sometimes do and being rather stupid probably. But part of the game involved sort of driving those in the vehicles, driving them at all the people who weren't in the vehicles and the people not in the vehicles trying to get out of the way. Um, and on one occasion, this guy was coming towards with me on a motorcycle and I stepped quite, you know, there's plenty of room, it wasn't dangerous, I stepped to one side the same moment as he veered to miss me, same direction, and he hit me, and I was airborne. It wasn't a high-speed thing, well, you know, fast. It was, uh, it was uh, painful, and uh, I still have the scar on my elbow, and felt a little pride at the fact that it did more damage to the motorbike than me. But it's left me with, in my very cells, if I hear a motorbike, I can be 10 yards away from the road. I could be locked in a steel drum you know, six foot thick concrete walls. If I hear a motorbike, my, my system goes, ah! You know, I'm about to get hurt. And I can't really talk it out of that. I don't need to. I just need to stop and look. Is there a motorbike? Am I in its way? No, it's all right. Am I in its way? Yes. Oh, okay, move. So we have these responses. And we need to meet them with some wisdom, with some understanding but in the present, in the actual, in the immediacy. And to see that the whole process of staying busy, of keeping active, of always trying to find something to do, to, and doing, as I said, it's about trying to measure and evaluate the productivity or the results of our activity. It's hard to step out of that because there's a, a sense of fear that arises. <coughs> if we're not doing it, a fear of being out of control, that the sense of doing of busyness gives us a sense of being in control. It gives us a sense of somehow as if we're protecting ourselves or insulating ourselves from the vulnerability of the human condition. And the human condition is vulnerable. We are subject to being impinged upon, impacted, not necessarily by motorbikes, may just be by harsh words, or looks, or even thoughts, or the sound of an, something that kind of grates on us, 
So many things impact us. We're really sensitive human beings. And as we sit and we practice here, that sensitivity becomes more and more apparent because the, the way in which we live distant from ourselves, disconnected often from our experience, is a way of coping and dealing with it because we haven't yet learned how to, how to handle it skillfully. Here on the retreat, that sensitivity starts to show itself more fully. You start to feel it. And it can be a little scary initially because we see also that we're not in control of what's happening. But the truth of it is that all that activity to try and keep ourselves safe, despite all of that, we're still not in control. We're still subject to the uncontrollability, the vulnerability of life. And to really let that in. It's really it's simple to talk about. I've talked about it plenty, I tell you. And still, there's ways in which I find myself resisting it. And one simple way for myself was uh, trying to sew on a button yesterday. And uh, prided myself for many years in uh, having really good eyesight. still think it's pretty good. But just seeing that when I put the needle in the thread close enough so I could actually see them both, <laughs> they weren't very clear. So I was, oh, okay, yeah. And it's like this point of, well, actually, I have to say it now. My eyesight is not what it was. I cannot... I cannot see those things very well. I'm spending quite a lot. I should have gone and asked someone else to help me. It's been half an hour trying to get the needle to go in the. The last time I tried to thread a needle, that did not happen. And I was just like, wow, okay, it's happened. I've got there. All my friends have been telling me about it for years, and I've been going, I'm I'm not there. (laughs) Now I am. And it's such a little thing. Of course, for some of us, much larger junctures of our bodily shifts we encounter as we age, as we grow, as we find ourselves older, the functionality and capacity of our body changes. And it's not something we can choose. It's not something we can stop. We might, if we're lucky, be able to slow it down a little sometimes, but there's no guarantee of that. In fact, we might have already slowed it down to have already got it this good for this long. And it's scary to really let that in. It's scary. Or it can be scary. And yet at the same time, if we could make friends with the fact that it's like that, if we could allow ourselves to begin to find some ease with the fact that it's like that, there's something actually quite also relieving about it. It's like, ah, okay, yeah. Actually, it's not something that I can control. Therefore, I don't have to feel so responsible for how it turns out. I don't have to feel like it's my fault if it turns out to be really hard or difficult. It's just how it is. And you know, most of the primary functions, the real crucial stuff, it just happens, doesn't it? Breathing happens. Have you noticed how breathing happens? You don't have to do it. You don't have to pay attention to it and make it happen. It's actually quite fortunate really, isn't it? that it happens without us having to pay attention to it, because probably if we spaced out for more than three minutes, we'd be dead. (laughs) Of course, having said that, if we did have to pay attention to it to keep the breathing going, we'd have learnt really early on to pay very good attention, and our mind would not wander. Breath in, breath out. Breath in, breath out. (laughs) And you know, actually, we could be that interested in it, because one day it will go out, And I won't come back in. 
And most of us will not know when it goes out that that was the one that went out to which there will be no one coming in. Most of us won't know that when it happens. Human vulnerability. Wow. And yet, oh, yeah, it's like that. It's like that. We can't control it. We can't stop that. Likewise, in terms of practice, the quality of presence and mindfulness, of awareness and sensitivity that we bring, we have the intention to engage in this way. And yet, sometimes it seems we're able to. And I'm sure there's nobody here who hasn't been able to at times engage with mindfulness, with sensitivity, with presence, with awareness. And I'm equally sure that there's nobody here who's been able to keep that and sustain that and maintain that without interruption since we began. And so there's a way in which the very fundamental qualities that we're supporting and sustaining here aren't something that we do. We turn towards it, but when we turn towards it, it's just here. And when we space out or when the mind wanders, for the most part, it's not that we've decided, oh, I think I'll take a holiday, you know, I've done pretty well, you know, ticked all the boxes, I might as well have a break. It's just that somehow it happens and we're lost, we're gone, disappeared. And how is it from that condition that we come back? By definition, we're not there. We're not conscious to know that we're unconscious. And so we come back, but we don't ever do that. It just happens. It's like the light suddenly comes on. We didn't even know there was a switch. We didn't even know there was a light. Because we weren't there. And yet it happens. So easily then we think, oh, I've spaced out again, lost it, hopeless, can't do it. Nah. But we could equally say, wow, amazing, look. The light came on. I didn't touch the switch. But I haven't found the switch. If I can find the switch, this is going to change. But do you sense, do you have a, a feeling of what that's implying about what's most fundamental and therefore everything? So we're invited to let go in so many ways. To let go of driving, of producing, of generating this process and really learn to rest in the, the being with it, the being of it, the beingness, the human beingness. Beingness gives no guarantee of outcomes. But at least it's peaceful. Trying to make it happen doesn't give any guarantee either. And it's exhausting. Frustrating. And painful. So we find ourselves drawn to and seeking a quality of stillness, of stability, 
and yet it's not something we can do or produce. That's a little bit paradoxical, perhaps a little frustrating for us, understandably. And it's important to understand that stillness is not the absence of activity, not the absence of external activity, not the absence of internal activity. But stillness is, <coughs> in terms of the stillness that we really seek for, that we long for, it's really the absence of the need to change, to control, to secure, to fix, or to interfere with what's going on. Just the knowing of it, as it is, as okay. There's a stillness, a profound stillness in this. <coughs> and it's a stillness which is not passive. And that's important to understand. It's a stillness that allows us to connect with the natural responsivity and response ability of life, of our life, of this life. There's a, a way in which that just letting ourselves be and releasing the compulsive need to do, to react, to produce, it allows something else to come through. It allows something else to come through. But it requires a lot of effort. Not doing is not an easy option. To learn to be, we have to stand steady in the face of that momentum, that pull, that drivenness that says, no, get busy here. Make something happen. Fix something. Quick. So it requires a great courage, in fact, a great courage and a, and a degree of faith and surrender too. Someone asked me today about the place of faith and in the heart of it for me really, faith is in the truth of how it is, trusting in the way things are. Not in some esoteric sense of the way things are, but that this where I am and what I'm encountering and what's happening here, this is the place in which the Dharma can be discovered, in which my life can be unfolded, in which the wisdom, the compassion, the peace and the freedom that we seek can be discovered. It's here. It's in the midst of this. Learning to trust in this. Learning to open to this. This is very much at the heart of our practice. And I'd like to read you a piece from one of my teachers, uh, Ajahn Sachito, who I also feel myself very fortunate to regard as a friend. He's a, uh, a Buddhist, an English Buddhist monk uh, based, in, in, uh, based in a monastery in England. And I first met him in India 20 years ago or so when he was on a pilgrimage and had just recently uh, survived being mugged by axe-wielding bandits. And he gave a remarkable talk, which this is extracted from. He said, there is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control and the nobility of our life, 
the nobility of our purpose, the aspiration of our life says, keep going, past the area where you can't control it anymore, and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth, to honour truth, and to trust the truth of our life as it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life. So can we allow ourselves to trust that where we are is where we need to be? That what is here is just what is needed? That it couldn't be any other way and we don't need to make it different. But we do need to turn towards it unconditionally and give ourselves completely, holding nothing back to this. This life, this moment, that's unfolding, that's happening right here and now. And we could ask, how is it that water gets back to the ocean? Do you think it needs to do anything in order for that to happen? That it needs to be busy or worrying about whether the river that it happens to have found is good enough? or the puddle that it seems to be inhabiting is clean enough. How does water get back to the ocean? Isn't it simply the nature of things that water finds its way to the ocean inevitably, unstoppably? When we speak of non-doing, we speak of the beingness of life. We're pointing to what we could say as a, a returning to, but a reconnecting with perhaps more clearly or understanding more fully the nature, the natural original condition of life, of our heart, our mind, what this being is that is alive, that is conscious that can awaken more and more fully and deeply into life. Understanding that so much of our activity in fact keeps us distant from and obscures in fact what is here, what is immediate, imminent, present and alive in us and around us, through us. And that our busyness doesn't bring us any closer to it. Fortunately, it doesn't take us any further away from it either. And what is this that it means to be? Alive, sensitive, touched by life, in the midst of it all. To be wholeheartedly present, 
to be this very wakefulness, this very presence that's nothing we can touch or hold, that whatever we might speak to in these terms is most best or most usefully spoken in terms of verbs rather than nouns. And yet there's something here for us in the very midst of our life that's calling, that's speaking. And that we don't have to go anywhere else to discover. We don't have to do anything else to realize. We don't have to be anyone else to know. So let's sit together for a minute or two. Nowhere to go. Nothing to do. And so may we all, in our practice and through our lives, come to rest more deeply in the simple presence of life. To abide and to trust ever more deeply in the heart's capacity to open in the mind's capacity to wake up. For our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.